is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. COVID now responsible for more than 5 million deaths around the world. The pandemic may end at some point, but the virus not going anywhere. And the power dynamics between labor and management changing because of COVID-19. Organized labor has the upper hand right now. How long will that last? We'll look at all those things today. We start with the rising death toll because of COVID-19. More than 5 million people across the world have lost their lives to the virus. Dr. Robert Wachter, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. So, Doctor, how much longer are we going to be dealing with this? I think it's going to be with us for a long time. I hate to say it, but maybe forever, but not in the way that we've experienced over the past year. We may be entering a phase of what may be the new normal where there are low levels of cases and unfortunately low levels of deaths, uh, but we're able to begin living life in a little bit more of a normal way than we did uh, previously. And I think that's sort of where the the moment that we're at where things may get 10 or 20 or 30 percent better and maybe the same percent worse, but not 90 percent better and not 90 percent worse. What does the five million or more say to you? Is it an indication of how this is in different paces and places almost in different spots in the world? Well, it's staggering. I mean, just it's it's if you thought about that possibility even 18 months ago, you would have said that that can't happen. And it has happened. In the United States, uh, you know, we're 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 closing in on 800,000, nearly the size of the city of San Francisco, of people who've died, and and uh, and seven times that around the world. So, it just means we have to redouble our efforts to do everything we can to diminish the toll as we go forward. Uh, but obviously, we can't bring those lives back. Now, we talked about the likelihood that the uh, you know five million uh, death toll is probably a lot higher than that, and, and we can probably assume that's true because there are parts of the world that uh, don't have the infrastructure that uh, developed nations do, and so the assumptions made that the death toll from the pandemic is much higher there. Is that the case? I think that's that's not only the case because of inadequate reporting from certain parts of the world, but when you look at the number of deaths that are reported in the United States. And then you look at the excess number of deaths compared to the baseline year, uh, there's a difference there. So there's clearly been more deaths from COVID. Now, some of them are from people who had other diseases, heart attacks, strokes, cancer, that weren't able to get the care that they needed. And you certainly saw that in L.A. during the, the height of the surge. So the toll is at very least what we know about and probably uh, significantly more than that, both in the United States and everywhere else. Do you worry about the other effects like after effects of COVID, even if you know it, it will still be running around in, in circles probably forever, like you mentioned, but people put off medical care, that's going to catch up with them eventually. There's long haulers running around. There are still people who won't get vaccinated who will eventually get COVID. So that's all something that's not today. It's, it's even months and, and years from now. Yeah, it's it's all of that. I, I do worry about long COVID. I don't think we know enough about it yet, but it is very clear that a a decent percentage of people who get COVID continue to have symptoms for many months and maybe even longer than that. Afterwards, we also see evidence of potential organ damage and some pretty important organs like like the like the brain and the kidneys. And so I think we're going to fi- we'll find out about the toll uh, later. And then in terms of deferred medical care, uh, yes, that's an issue. I went to see the dentist the other day for the first time in two years, and he he, he scolded me because my mouth looked terrible. 
Uh, and and of course, I it was what I was expecting because I really had deferred something that I need to be doing. And just think about that in terms of you know people who needed their heart uh, worked up or their blood pressure medicines or their their colonoscopy. So I think there are a lot of different tolls that will play out over time. And one of the things I frankly worry about the most is we used to not give it a second thought that kids would get all of these necessary vaccines for measles and mumps and rubella and these other things. And now that vaccines have become this political football, are we going to see more people not taking not just COVID vaccine, but even other vaccines that we know are life-saving? So the whole thing is a little bit scary. Yeah. Would you say this resistance to uh, getting vaccinated, this resistance to even very simple things like uh, wearing a a face covering, uh, would you attribute maybe some of this five million death toll to to people that did not have to die, that had we just followed more of the uh, guidelines and gotten vaccinated uh, sooner, gotten more of us vaccinated sooner, that maybe uh, that number would be lower? Oh, there's no question about it. I think if you look at the United States, there are, you know, there were going to be hundreds of thousands of deaths from this virus. It's a terrible virus. It spreads relatively easily and kills a, a higher proportion of the people who are victims than other viruses like the flu. But I look at San Francisco, where I live, where we've been really good on vaccines, we're really good on masks, and our per capita death rate is about one quarter of the national average. Now, San Francisco has some natural advantages in terms of wealth and people who are able to work at home. But I think that if the rest of the country had followed the guidelines and had gotten vaccinated at the rate that we've seen here in in San Francisco and California in general, uh, we would certainly have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. There's no doubt about it. That's just in the United States. You multiply that around the world. There certainly are more than a million people who died who did not uh, need to have died. And this year in 2021, I mean, every death that we see now, or pretty much every death, uh, part of the reason it feels so terrible now is we know that it it would have been preventable. If you see a death in an unvaccinated person, which is virtually all of the deaths that we're seeing, you just know that it could have been prevented, and that makes it doubly tragic. Dr. Robert Walker, professor, chair of the Department of Medicine, UC San Francisco. Doctor, thanks. So you heard one take there from Dr. Walker, looking more like the pandemic will not end with us eliminating the virus, you know, getting to COVID zero, but learning to deal with it, live with it. Dr. Peter Hotez, dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College and co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development is with us now. Doctor, thanks for coming back. Are we just going to have to get used to people getting COVID? It'll come around during wintertime, during the colder months, and it's going to happen? Well, I don't think we really know. Um, you know, it really also depends on how aggressive we can be with vaccinating the American people and vaccinating the world. I'm still of the view that we could potentially vaccinate our way out of this, um, but it's gonna—it's a pretty high bar. We're talking about reaching uh, national and global vaccination rates that approach something like measles or polio, and we're quite a, a long ways away from that. But I think if we do that, we're not seeing that much genetic variation, and I and I think we don't necessarily have to buy into the fact that we're going to be seeing this on a seasonal basis. But I think Bob, Dr. Wachter, who, by the way, is a friend, is an, he's an amazing guy, brilliant physician scientist. Um, you know, it really depends on how, how we do with vaccinating the American people and vaccinating the world. But, you know, we've got all this resistance to vaccines, which, uh, I, I, you know, I, I 
certainly wasn't around back then when we began to wipe out measles and things with vaccines. Was there this kind of pushback against that? And and how do you explain that? Is it maybe, uh, as, uh, Mike and I were having a discussion off the air, maybe the virus wasn't deadly enough that it scared people to like, vaccine, I'll take it. You've got this pushback now. And is that really going to hold us back and, and lengthen the thing even further? Well, this was waiting to happen. Um, people had not been following the anti-vaccine movement like I've been, and partly have done that for survival because I'm a number one target. I wrote a book a few years ago called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism uh, because that was the original assertion. They claim vaccines cause autism. So I wrote about one of my adult kids, Rachel has autism and intellectual disabilities. And I saw the saw the aggression firsthand over, evolve over the last few years. And despite my best efforts to call attention to it and, and how it's how it became a political movement starting in 2015, in part because of what happened in Orange County and in Southern California um, over this fake health freedom movement that accelerated in Texas, it became linked to political conservatism, to the Republican Tea Party, and it's grown ever since. And, and the, the big mistake was not getting health and human services agencies to take this on in a meaningful way and it, it had an enabling quality and now it's a monster it's and it's become a globalized enterprise if this resistance keeps up and we don't get to the rates that you're talking about that actually could get us out of this it's good news that we could but if we can't and we don't get there what do you think it looks like we mentioned seasonality uh, you know it can become endemic but for people who are vaccinated and i think maybe this has also shifted a little bit early on it was early on now, a few months ago, we've had these vaccines. It was people who got breakthrough cases. It was, like, oh, my gosh, that person got a breakthrough case. And now it's kind of shifted to like, oh, they got a breakthrough case. I'll see you in a week to 10 days because they're largely mild. Well, they are. But, you know, we're also seeing severe illness as well. And, and that's the rationale for doing the boosters of the of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and, and, and the Moderna vaccine. And I think that will restore a lot of protective uh, activity, not only against severe illness, but now we're starting to see emerging data that once you give that third immunization, you could stop potentially transmission again. So if you remember, the way this worked was when the vaccines were rolled out, um, they were rolled out primarily to show that they could stop symptomatic illness. But then out of Israel came studies showing, hey, this is also interrupting transmission. It's stopping virus shedding from the nose and mouth. And we thought, wow, then we could actually potentially um, halt virus transmission and vaccinate our way out of it. That was uh, back in the early part of the, the winter spring. But then uh, protection waned. It started to go down and we lost that transmission inhibiting function. But now when you're boosting with that third immunization, it may restore it um, because you get a really big bump in uh, virus neutralizing antibodies, maybe a 20 to 30 fold rise. So I think we could still get back there. But, you know, but I have to say the bar is super high. We're talking about 80 to 90 percent of the U.S. population vaccinated. That's not 80 to 90 percent of the adults. That's 80 to 90 percent of the entire U.S. population vaccinated. That means all of the adults and all of the adolescents and probably um, fully vaccinated is going to mean three doses of either of the two mRNA vaccines and two doses of the J&J vaccine. And you could say, well, gosh, we're never going to reach that. Well, we can and we have, right? We do it every year for polio and measles and diphtheria and pertussis. 
but we've got this anti-vaccine aggression that uh, or anti-science aggression that's become so virulent and is such now a, it's been adopted as a major part of the platform of the political right it's going to be tough when we try to imagine, you know, it's not going to end per se, but there is going to be an end phase where the COVID-19 is not top of mind. Uh, would it be something like, and correct me if I'm wrong, we still have bubonic plague. It still exists. People still get it. But it's not like a major health crisis when we do hear about these uh, little breakouts of it. Is that going to be the picture with COVID at some point down the road where uh, COVID's going to be around, but uh, it's not going to be a thing that freaks us out? Well, you know, again, I, I'm still on the um, I'm still on the side that we shouldn't be so complacent that we still should strive to get rid of this virus, and and that means doing what I just said in the U.S. and using vaccines like ours for global health, COVID nineteen, and fully vaccinating the world. I, I think we still have to keep that as a goal. If we don't, um, then then there are some models like uh, my colleague Mark Lipsitch at Harvard School of Public Health suggest that we might see a seasonal peak in the winter, just like we do with some of the upper respiratory uh, coronaviruses. Um, but then again, we are also seeing peaks in the summer. We saw it in 2020 and 2021 here in the southern part of the United States. So it could have that sort of biphasic rise and, and fall ebb and flow. But let's see. Let's see how we do in terms of continuing to vaccinate. Um, I still think we got to push hard. Dr. Peter Hotez, Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine, Baylor College of Medicine, co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. Dr. Hotez, thanks for coming back on the show. Short break, and then the pandemic has given American workers more power. What does that mean for the future of organized labor? Well, last month, and you might have heard this, it was referred to by some as Striketober. We saw a lot of action on the organized labor front. It appears American workers are starting to get an upper hand on management in some cases. Is this because of the pandemic? Is it a sign of things to come? Matt Leon with KYW News Radio in Philadelphia spoke about that with Scott Diekel, chair of the Department of Business and Economics at Ursinus College. Because we can obviously see some some policies that resulted from the pandemic and, and some responses to the pandemic that are driving uh, this this reduction in the size of the labor force that's uh, get, creating a shortage that's giving um, uh, employees some bargaining power. I would say before the pandemic, there were two big trends that I saw that were uh, also going to contribute to increased bargaining power for workers anyway. Uh, number one is the aging of the United States population. Um, uh, the the baby boomer generation, uh, as we all probably know, is in the process of retiring and has been for the last uh, 10 or 15 years or so. With that retirement, there has not been a equal replacement of those workers in the workforce. And if you look at the data starting about five, six years ago, uh, the size of the U.S. workforce as a whole, has started to decline, as in the size of the working age population, people between the ages of 15 and 64. So that in itself is reducing the supply of labor in the United States, and that's going to give workers some bargaining power. Um, the, the other trend that I think started uh, more recently was the, the trend against free trade. So, of course, that, that really got uh, a boost from the election of Donald Trump in 2016. And uh, as he moved into office, he uh, began 
renegotiating trade agreements, taking us out of trade agreements, imposing tariffs on China, Europe, Canada, and all of those things uh, tend to do things that uh, make production in America more attractive. And that's going to increase the demand for American workers and, again, give them uh, more power at the bargaining table. So how are you looking at this moment? Are we at the beginning of a big picture thing that could truly shift the calculus of the labor management dynamic? Or are we kind of in a moment in a bubble where things have shifted, but we will eventually see kind of a return to uh, the norm? Although the trends you talked about are obviously still going to be in play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, on, on the whole, I, I see a small improvement for workers and their bargaining power, and I think we'll notice it a lot over the next year or so. But beyond that, I am not as sure things are going to be a lot better for workers going forward. So, I mean, thinking about the short term, in the short term, we have workers who have a lot of cash at their disposal as a result of all the pandemic relief programs. And we also have um, a supply chain crisis where uh, a lot of goods and services from overseas are not making their way to the markets in the United States. And so those those events, those, those policies, those factors are all things that give American workers uh, more leverage when they're uh, negotiating their pay and and uh, determining their working conditions. And I think that's going to help them out in the short term. We also see that uh, with the Democratic Congress and president, they have a slim majority in Congress, and they're they're in the process of making some, I'd say, incremental uh, changes that are going to benefit uh, workers in their negotiations with employers too. But looking over the long term, I, I see two big things that I think are going to uh, make it a little more difficult for workers to get back to say where they were in the 1960s uh, or 1950s. W- one trend is the, um, uh, maybe not even the trend is the right word, but it's just the reality that uh, about half the states in the United States are right to work states. And those are states, like I think I mentioned earlier, where if there's a union representing the workers at an employer, uh, workers are not obligated or required to join that union. And so that, that of course, reduces union membership and bargaining power throughout the states. It, it's also just indicative in general of a climate in the states that's friendlier to employers. And I, I don't see the, the political forces that would drive change to those kinds of laws happening anytime soon. It seems like the the pro-business spirit, I think, is still pretty alive and well in, in those states. And as, as long as that's a, a considerable part of the United States that has that kind of policy and that kind of uh, framework for business operations, I, I think it's going to make the country as a whole fairly friendly to business. Even if you are in a state that um, requires employees to join, join unions and has more employer-friendly laws, uh, that state still has to compete with the the cheaper labor states. And so it's always going to be a constraint on what workers can get. 
All right, imagine this one. Being stuck in a theme park for hours, uh, past when you want to go home, because one person tested positive for COVID-19. That is what happened at Disneyland in Shanghai, China over the weekend. They do not mess around with the protocols there. Uh, tens of thousands of people had to be tested and then await their negative results before they were finally allowed to leave. This is an Odyssey original. You can find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.